Welcome to the Varying Viewpoints podcast series. Uh, this is Mary Beth Gassman, and I am your host today, and we are talking to Michael Sorrell, who is the president of Paul Quinn College. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Mary Beth. It's great to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here at uh, Rutgers. Um, so you and I have uh, known each other a long time. I don't even remember how long, but I do remember how I met you. You called me in a desperate phone call. Um, do you remember that? I do. I do. <laughs> I, like, I, I remember because you were one of the few people that wrote something nice about us, and I called you to say thank you. That's right. That's right. Which, um, which uh, it was my pleasure. But um, and then we ended up, I think, uh, having lunch, and then we've been uh, fast friends ever since. Ever so, since. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm really happy to be able to chat it up with you today. Um, so, uh, a lot. We have lots of questions, okay. and um, and of course, uh, we always try to crowdsource some questions from people who are interested in what you do. And then our team here has also put together some questions. So um, I guess one of them is, um, what is the most rewarding part about being president of Paul Quinn College for you? Oh, I think the most rewarding part is always our next, right? I, I'm not someone that spends a ton of time contemplating what they've already accomplished. So I'm always very, very forward thinking. Whenever people tell me, oh, you all are doing amazing things, my response is, we're just warming up, right? So for me, it's that we've become an institution where what's on the horizon is always promising. And, and that that is gratifying because that means that our students can take comfort and security and the value proposition that we've created for them, that our alums can take comfort in feeling good about, you know, and feeling, you know, I think we all feel pride in our institution, but you also want to have pride in who they're becoming. And so um, I just, I take great joy in what we represent for those who are coming next. So uh, thank you. Here, here's a question I have. It's really interesting to, hear you, you know, say those kinds of things now and then have known you when Paul Quinn was really in a... And they might not have been yeah. in that. <laughs> right. right. So, um, and in full disclosure to anybody listening, I am on the board of trustees at Paul Quinn, so I have a little bit of inside info, which I'm not going to bring out today. But, um, but what I do want to say is that I do remember when Paul Quinn was really struggling, when people thought you were crazy yeah. to take on the leadership of this institution, even after being there for several uh, years uh, where people didn't really understand why, why you were doing this. And I, I would find myself sometimes even defending you to people and saying, oh, you don't understand what, what he's trying to do, right? And we have some people who might be presidents of small black colleges now who are in that same situation. Yeah. And hopefully they're listening and will be motivated. But I guess what I'm wondering is, um, how did you think about the next when people weren't believing in you? Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. I, um, Paul Quinn has been a revelation for me for lots of different reasons. But one is I had spent zero time in my life being attached to things that people didn't believe in, right? I mean, I came from a highly successful family. I went to the very best schools. I succeeded in those schools. I had, I worked at places that, you know, you didn't have to explain where they were or any of that. And I, 
so I just sort of took for granted the you know and you can word people like to use now is privilege, but you know I took for granted that people always gave you the benefit of the doubt. I mean, now let's be clear. I mean, I'm a black male, so I know a bit about when people discount you. I'm a black male who was an athlete, so. You know, there was always the group of people who thought I was in places and in schools because of, you know, relaxed standards and things like that. But, you know, those were pretty easy to dismiss, you know, once we got into the first or second class. Um, but this was something different. I mean, there were people who genuinely laughed at me, right, who in public form said that the school was stupid for hiring me. Um, who I remember, know, yeah, you know, <laughs> thought that I was yeah. going to be a failure, and like, and were cheering for me to fail, right? Mm -hmm. And I just and, and cheered for the school to fail. I mean, there were people. I will never forget this. I was in the grocery store just buying some cereal, and people were coming up to me telling me we were going to fail. I would be on the treadmill, and people would come and be like, "You never should have taken that job." And I mean, just some of the most ridiculous things. And, you know, you have to decide pretty early on when you realize that you look at the world differently, whether or not you're going to let the people who look at the world traditionally beat you down, right? And I've always looked at things a little bit differently. Now, what I didn't appreciate was that it turns out that I'm creative. Right. And I spent my whole life until I got to Paul Quinn, not really thinking I was creative because I thought creativity was the domain of the fine arts. Right. And I knew mm. I couldn't draw. I can't sing. Right. Like, <laughs> so I didn't think that I was, you know, creative. You can say that again. Right, right, no. Like, I know I can't sing. Right. And it is, um, it, it's just what I would tell you is that people don't tend to believe things they haven't seen before. Mm. And they don't believe things they haven't seen before in places they haven't thought about before. And people also don't want to believe that people can be successful who didn't prepare the same way they prepared. Mm -hmm. Because then that threatens them in a way. And, and I don't see it that way. Like I, I foolishly thought that being a, a historically black college president meant that I was joining this fraternity of men and women who had this really unique camaraderie. And I mean, you know, I, I was so excited, you know, I was like, oh, you know, Booker T. Washington and Benjamin Mays and, you know, all these extraordinary, Norman Fred, all these extraordinary individuals. And, you know, what I learned pretty quickly was, yeah, there was some, there's some of that, right? There's some other stuff that nobody wrote about, right? That wasn't available for me to have, you know, gained knowledge. And pretty, pretty quickly, I just realized that, you know what? Every institution that people wrote about had a golden age. Why couldn't this be our golden age, mm -hmm. right? And so I just stopped. I stopped listening. I stopped looking externally for validation from people who weren't where I wanted us to go, right? Which was interesting because the first two or three years, maybe probably the first four years, I was obsessive about going out and visiting other schools. Mm -hmm, right? I remember, and, yeah. you know, talking, I mean, I, I mean, I've lost, right? I've visited 30 or 40 schools, right? And just sometimes I would call 
the president's offices and arrange meetings. A bunch of times I would just show up on campuses and just walk around and just talk to people to, you know, pull out what were their experiences. And what I discovered was that people who are really, really successful are too busy to be petty and Mm -hmm. to hate, Mm -hmm. right? So I stopped giving audience to people who weren't in the places that I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And it has made my life infinitely better. Mm -hmm. It absolutely makes it better, right? Absolutely. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So uh, here's a question that uh, we kind of had here uh, uh, within the um, Proctor Institute and the Center for Minority Serving Institutions. And that is, uh, so as I mentioned, Paul Quinn College is in the news all the time, right? Uh, For being really innovative and looking at ways of solving problems in higher education in, in different ways and kind of going against the grain. And, um, and then in addition, you're in the news for being a transformative leader, being, you know, I would say revolutionary in the way that you approach things. And I guess we're wondering, um, can, can you tell us, like, can you tell us what you have planned, let's say in the next five years for Paul Quinn that might go against the grain or would surprise us or um, is, are you, are you planning to like shake up higher ed anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I really am very sincere when I tell people to just warm it up. I mean, I, I haven't taken the best stuff off the shelf yet. Right? Okay. Um, we are creating a system of urban work colleges. We're going to create a network of urban work mm-hmm. colleges. Um, we're very fortunate. The Kresge Foundation gave us a grant to do some convenings, but also to be able to hire Boston Consulting Group to help us create a replication model, mm-hmm. right? And BCG did an extraordinary job. Um, and so now we, starting in May, we begin the convenings. And so we were looking at opening up in the next five years, I would tell you, we will open at least two new campuses, right? Which will bring the total to four. I think we might wind up with more, but you know, you also have to be very methodical and not overreach um, because the key to sustaining our success is being able to get outside of Texas, right? So why is that? Tell us why. Well, because when you're in Texas, you can basically run it through a centralized model with the home campus, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've got PQC Plano, which is doing really well, um, and but that's that's a smaller beta test example. Mm-hmm. The next things that come up will require us to be able to so. Let me back up a little bit. So we're thinking about this in a completely adaptable franchise model, right? I mean, and I know it might ruffle some feathers for people to think about higher education in a franchise model, mm-hmm. um, but that's the simplest way to, to explain it. So we're going to go into markets. We're going to understand what the market needs in terms of programs, and then we're going to offer those programs. Mm-hmm. We're not going to offer everything, everything okay. right? We're just going to say, look, this is, and you know, I'm going to pick something that we won't do just so I won't give away any trade mm-hmm. secrets. But so it would be akin to going into New York and saying, we're going to offer uh, investment banking discipline, right? Because that's a really profitable major mm-hmm. there. Um, we, I think that there are 40 schools 
that like to think of themselves as top 20 schools, right? Mm -hmm. And those schools <laughs> want to perpetuate a model of higher education that works for that small group yeah. of people. And, you know, they are retents, I mean, research intensive institutions. They have large endowments. Um, they have selective, a highly selective enrollment criteria. So that's great for those 40 pretending to be 20, right? The rest of us mm -hmm. inhabit a completely different world. And I'm fascinated by the idea that those 40 should be the experts in higher education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? me too. They're the experts in a very narrow slice of higher education. We're not here for them, right? Mm. We're here for the rest, right? And the rest are people who need institutions to address the issues of their lives. They need institutions who say, we see you, we hear you, we're gonna respond to your needs. We understand that you're coming because you need a job. And, you know, I went to Oberlin College, the most liberal arts of the liberal arts schools. Right? Mm -hmm. And they told us over and over again, lifelong learning, lifelong learning. And, you know, look, it works for me. But I came from a background where I didn't think for one minute about, I don't even know where the career placement office at Oberlin is, right? Like, mm -hmm. I know we have one. I just, I don't think I ever went. And it was because I knew I was going to go to school. And that I was going to go to graduate school or law school. And if I didn't go to grad school or law school, something else would come up and I'd be fine, mm -hmm. right? Which is exactly how it worked. Mm -hmm. I, I had a luxury that most people now don't have. So they're coming to college because they want to get a job and career. Now, the students that we have, 80 85% of Pell Grant eligible, they tend to think of it as we're coming to school to get a job, right? We want them to think we're coming to school to get a career. We're not, we want it to be lifelong learning, but we really want you to be able to do lifelong earning, mm -hmm. right? And that's our focus. So we've said, well, do we, does higher ed engage in a way where it provides the students with enough, right? We charge them a lot, but do we provide them with enough? And there's a school of thought that says, well, you're here, you have access to all these things, you're going to be fine. Right? That works if you've got safety nets to fall back. Yeah, on, yeah. Right? That doesn't work if the school is supposed to be the safety mm -hmm, net. Right. right? So we looked at it and we said, you know, this is what I'm going to talk about in my talk this evening. It's just about reality based education, right? Mm -hmm. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of your students' lives. And then you address, you build institutions which speak exactly to those issues. So, you know, we think people should get some type of guarantees, right? And not we guarantee you this, but providing the platform for guarantees. So if you come to Paul Quinn going forward, you're going to get three ways to earn a career. Your subject matter expertise, which is just what you major in. Your four years of experiential learning, which is the work program. Mm -hmm. And then starting in the fall, we're going to start offering credentials, right? Like digital credentials, where... Each semester, each year, you get one to two of those, and they're stackable. So people will graduate with four to eight digital credentials or certificates, which allow them to access jobs in completely different places. So, you know, you could say I majored in history. Mm -hmm. 
thought I wanted to be a professor and I want to be a professor. I did my four internships at a business, um, you know, at a management consulting firm. Don't want to do that. So if you're that student here to four, you'd be out of luck. Yeah. But now we're going to offer credentials. The first one would be Microsoft Office. Okay. Right. And you can get that in a semester. So if you drop out of school in a semester, we have already lifted you out of poverty because you can make between fifty to eighty thousand dollars being Microsoft Office certified mm-hmm. for less than sixty-five thousand dollars over a four-year period of time. Students will be able to say, "I have so many." so many skills, so many certificates, so many bodies of knowledge that whatever happens, I can use, I can code, I can use Microsoft Office Word, I can do data security. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's the future. Do you think that's what higher education is going to move toward rather than I'm, you know, majoring in history or I'm majoring in literature? I think we're going to have to, provide students with a broader set of opportunities to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I don't think you'll ever get rid of majors. I don't think you should get rid yeah. of majors, right? Like I I really enjoy, I was a government major, right? Like I really enjoyed the study of government. Um, I would not have wanted to give that up, but I also recognize I came from a different place and I view, I mean, we're trying to eradicate poverty and I view poverty as a, as a state of mind uh, of a compared to a country that people need to migrate from, mm-hmm. right? So if that's the case, then let's look at the trip from poverty in terms of an immigration experience, right? The first set of immigrants usually work really hard to establish a financial foot, except for slaves, right? <laughs> like we got the because they deal. weren't immigrants, we yeah, weren't immigrants, yeah. right? Yeah. And so. The, <clears throat> but those who came on their own will generally work really hard to establish a financial foundation for the family. Mm. And it's doing whatever they have to do to establish that financial security. Then that next group, the first group, in many cases, has bought the second wave, the freedom to pursue things a little more um, to whatever their interests might. I mean, I look at my own family. Like, I mean, that's where I got the idea from was, you know, both my parents grew up in poverty. My dad mm-hmm. didn't go to college. My mother grew up in rural poverty. She went to college. Her mother went to college, but they didn't have a ton of money in the family. And so my parents built a really successful barbecue restaurant, right? Like my dad came home every, from Wednesday through Sunday, every night he came home smelling like ribs, <laughs> right? And because he came home every night smelling like ribs, I've spent no moment of my life smelling like ribs, right? He bought me out of the ribs. You don't, you don't even like ribs? I mean, I love them, but I don't eat pork now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm trying to live, on, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's, um, you know, I, I just, I think this model um, has the potential to be really revolutionary because, again, the thing that Paul Quinn stands for is the minimization of excuses. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because if there are a lot it, of them. There are yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. But if we can do it. Yeah. Because we don't have 
an endowment which allows us to say, oh, if it works, mm-hmm. great. If it doesn't work, you just write it off. But like, no, our stuff has to work, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a level of urgency, you know, that is very focusing, right? So um, I'm really excited about the model. I mean, you know, I tell people that we're going to replicate it nationally, but we absolutely have global intention. But, you know, you, maybe let's just work on getting national before mm-hmm. we start taking aim at Germany or Berlin. I mean, Germany or Turkey or, you know, someplace like that. So I'm, I'm also curious. So you, you have tried a lot of different things, like um, the franchise campus idea and franchise we're just using as a word because there isn't a better one. Um, the or maybe satellite or something. I don't know. I'm not sure. But but um, the work college, you have the, the urban farm, right? You have all these different kinds of things that are happening. The certificate programs that you're talking about or certification programs. What are what things that you're doing do you think can be replicated by other institutions? And do you think that you need the kind of special environment that you have for these things to work or can they work other places? So everything that we, that, well, let me personalize this. Every idea that I develop, I develop with the idea that it can be scaled and replicated, right? Uh, and I'm very attentive to that because I know so many people want to dismiss what we do as a one-off, right? Mm-hmm. As it can only be done because of a special set of circumstances. Right, and that's done all the time. All the time, yeah, right? all the like time. all the time. Yeah. Um, Especially and- with the successes of black colleges often people will say, well, we can't do that because we're not a black college, right? That's right. Okay. That's right. And what's ironic is people just don't talk about the ideas that they have pilfered from black colleges. Oh, right, right, right. right. So right. Charlie Nelms was just saying that on Twitter the other day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Like, you know, I was giving a talk not too long ago, and, you know, I sort of ruffled some people in the audience because I was just very candid. I was like, People disparage black colleges all the time and then turn around and steal all of our stuff mm-hmm. and then are dishonest about where they got it from. So this whole movement for wraparound services. Oh, right, right, right. Like, you know, I'm like, <laughs> where do you think it came from? Right? Right. Wraparound services, by definition, is an HBCU. Absolutely. Like, like we were created as the ultimate wraparound There service. wasn't a choice. There was no choice, right? <laughs> and people look at me like, oh, from daycare to like everything, everything, everything. everything. And so I, I just, I really laugh at people when they talk about that because I'm like, well, just have a really poor grasp of history. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, I, mean, I live in Texas where I realized that the poor grasp of history was by design. Oh, and absolutely. Look um, at the history books in Texas. That's exactly right. <laughs> So it is. Um, Those who were enslaved were happy, and you know that it was a work program. It was. It was a work program in the in the yeah in the history books. I know. I was just like, what is this? I think that's still on the books too. It is still there. Still there. You know, which you know makes it even more incumbent for parents to take the education Mm -hmm. of their children in their own hands. Yeah. Hands, right? Um, But the. so replicating. So what, replicating, what? absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I know for a fact is that the work urban work college model can be used at state schools, at community colleges. Um, it, it can be used anywhere. Right mm-hmm. now, it doesn't mean that the entire institution needs to become that. Right. I don't think it does. I think that you know you can literally have a college within a university that focuses 
on these areas, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that was as I started thinking through it, that's how um, I viewed it. But I mean, <clears throat> what you need more than anything else is you need leadership that isn't afraid or in love with itself, right? Because- Say know, more about that. Well, so a lot of people who get to be college presidents dream their whole lives of becoming college mm, presidents, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. And so for them, it was always the jewel that they were chasing. And when, you, when you're chasing that as a jewel, when you're chasing a jewel, you romanticize the uh -huh. jewel, right? I mean, you can't help a jewel, right. right? Like, I mean, it's just like if you spend your life looking at a, a young lady or a young man, you're like, oh, I really want to date that person. I really want to date that person. You miss who they really who are. Who they really are, right. right? Because they become some idealized notion. Right. Of, and then it could end up failing because you have these expectations, which are, can happen with the presidency. Which can happen yeah. with the presidency, yeah. right? And, you know, what I found very interesting about higher ed along these lines is a couple things. Number one, so many people spend their time chasing the next job. So they don't do the job they have. Certain, like, you know, they don't do it justice because they've been cautious mm -hmm. in it. I mean, I tell people all the time, if I were concerned about what my next job would be, Paul Quinn College would have failed because we never would have done the things that we've done because those things probably don't play very well or would not have traditionally played well in a search process, right? I mean, come on, like you cut the football program, mm -hmm. right? Well, that's going to certainly have a chilling effect if you want to go be president mm -hmm. of a school where football is a big deal. I mean, or so, in this day and age, you have a dress code. And we have a dress code, right? <laughs> Which, you know, God forbid. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so there, there are all these things that if, if I was so worried about next, I would have never done justice for now. And I, I just, I, I think people miss that. And so they, they become, they get closer to their goals, they achieve the goals and they become conservative in those goals, right? And so I always tell people when they come to me, like, oh, I really want to be an HBCU president. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what to do? I was like, first of all, that's a horrible goal to have. Mm -hmm. Your goal should be to become a transformational leader and let the rest take care yeah. of itself, yeah. right? Because if you if you develop your leadership skills, the opportunities will present themselves, right? But if you don't, and you're just chasing this thing. And the other thing I tell people too is, don't romanticize where your opportunities may come from. Like, I never would have been hired president anywhere else. Paul Quinn didn't even want to hire me, right? Like, I remember. Not, it's not like I was the first choice. Like, I sat there on that board for years watching them hire person after person after person. And, I mean, literally, they got to the bottom of the barrel and were like, what the hell? Nobody else will take the job. You know, we could close in 18 months. What do we have to lose, right? And so, you know, what I tell people is one, sit back on your pride, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it is, don't block your blessing, you know, because this gave me a chance to be the most creative version of myself. And it's a gift. And did you, did you, so you were a securities attorney before? So I, you know, I'm not that creative, <laughs> right? I was a securities lawyer. I worked in the White House. Right. I worked for a small boutique law firm where we were conciliaries for wealthy Texas families. 
I tried to bring the Olympics to Dallas. That didn't work. <laughs> um, I worked with an international public affairs firm doing crisis management work. I was an entrepreneur. I tried to buy an NBA franchise, represented NBA All-Stars. I mean, like, I, you know, I kicked a lot of tires on the way to this car. Is this the longest you've been in a position? By far. Okay, and, um, I, like, do you feel like, I mean, there was not a direct path at all here, right? And do you feel that, um, okay, then let's, I mean, if we're just to be blunt, I mean, I, I've been in conversations with people who would say to me, oh, you know, Michael's only in that job because he can't find anything else. And I would always say, okay, well, first of all, that's not true at all, because I'm fully aware that there are lots of people who have been after you, but you have this, I mean, I'm fully aware of it, right? But you have this, like, really, um, this devotion and this firm commitment to the work at Paul Quinn. So I guess what I'm wondering is, like, where is that coming from when a lot of people would be like, eh, you know, I've done my thing, I'm, I'm moving on. What, what is it about the space? And this kind of connects also to, you know, the whole we over me idea that you can explain at Paul Quinn and the culture there. Like, what is it that keeps you and makes you want to keep doing things when there are, I know there are people who've told you to like cut and run, no, right? Yeah. So no, everyone. Yeah. Right, so, like, <laughs> Yeah, no, um, so I think I think it's a couple things, right? I mean, number one, um, I don't have to chase the path everyone else chases, right? I have never felt the need to really do that. Um, I um, I mean, I, I guess the first thing is I know what it's like to work jobs that you don't love. And I know what it's like to be in places. I mean, I've had some bad experiences, right, in jobs. I mean, I, I, I worked at a place once that the partners I worked for made me come home from my mother's surgery bed to work on a closing so that they could go to Six Flags with their kids. Right, I lots I, of empathy. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> um, I, I have worked places where, you know, people really tried to do nasty things, you know, to me, like directly. And you know what I tell my students about this, I was like, people can take issue with you, but they can't take issue with your work ethic, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, you know, I'm it's hard to beat me to work, right? Like you might beat me in the office, but you're not gonna beat me to work, right? I mean, and I, I will work earlier and I will work later. I mean, you know, I worked at a job one time where the, like actually the people I was talking about made me come home, you mm. know, tried to get me fired from the job, right? And, you know, I remember having a conversation with the managing partner and <laughs> I told him, I said, you know what? I said, you go around this firm, and you, if you can find one person that tells you that I'm not a great young associate, you don't have to worry about it, right? If you don't have to fire me, I'll quit. Don't even worry about having to pay me the unemployment or whatever. I was like, okay. And he's like, no, no, no. I was like, no, no, no. He went around. He comes back to me and he says, I have never seen anything like this. He says, everyone loves you. 
the attorneys talk about what a hardworking and great young attorney you are. The guys in the mailroom found out about this, came to see me, and wanted to talk about how you're the first person here, and when you beat other people here, you pick up the papers and the mail that you always ask them about their family. Like, you know, like there's a way you yeah, conduct yourself. Yeah. And so I've had enough failure to appreciate success, right? And, you know, you, you don't always get to spend your days doing something you love for people you love. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a gift. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that there might not come a point in time where my voice is no longer the right voice right, for the right, institution, right. right? And that's a good thing to know because, right. you know, it's it's like a, a, a television show that knows when it should end instead of, like, what is it called, jumping the shark, right? right that's right. It's, it, and there are sometimes presidents who don't know when it's their time to go, and, and they should, and they right? they stay too long. Yeah, and they right? stay too long. And But, I mean, for one, we're going to build a network. Right. And we're going to continue to do things that people didn't think were possible. And what I want to do is financially secure the institution. Right. Is create a revenue stream that I I will never forget. um, I went to visit the president Howard, who was the president at the time I got there. And I'm drawing a blank on his name. He he did. He led the. That's it. Swagger. Swagger, yeah. Swagger. And he told me, he said, it is impossible for Harvard to have a bad president. He's like, Harvard can't have a bad president, and Harvard can't fail. It's like, it's too rich to fail, right? He said, if I have a bad month, Howard's in trouble. Mm -hmm. He's like, if you have a bad day... Your school's in trouble. He's like, you probably can have a bad afternoon. Hour. Right? Yeah. Right? Like a bad hour. Right? And, you know, and, you know, we laughed about it, but he was like, no. Yeah, like, no. Seriously, right? And, you know, I thought about it. I thought a lot about that over the 13 years, right? And, you know, I just, I've decided that perhaps the best gift that I can give the institution is a financially secure future. Right, I would agree. Right? Yeah, and I would agree. so you know, if you if if I've done all these things, and I leave, and it fails, then maybe it, it was a vanity project, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's not right. You don't build monuments to yourself, right? Right. right. Like you, you do right by the institutions and. I see the path. Well, I mean, we do that. have somebody right now who builds monuments to stuff, but but it's okay. Keep going. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just thinking about them. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my model okay, right. that you don't build monuments <laughs> right, to yourself, right? right? right. And it is. Um, <clears throat> so there is, I mean, you know, it's funny because. One of the opportunities that I was approached with that I, I really, really want, right? I mean, like, I got approached to be governor, run for governor of the state of Texas. And in all candor, like, I, this, that was one where I was just like, oh. Mm-hmm. And, but we needed a dorm. And if I had left, for what would have been a hard race, right? Yeah. So chances oh, yeah. are I would have run yeah. the race, yeah. 
probably would have taken the laws yeah. and come back and <laughs> we wouldn't have had the dorm. My students still wouldn't have had a dorm. They wouldn't have had the things. And ultimately, because there wasn't anyone around on the other side of that equation that said, we'll finish the fundraising for the dorm. I was just like, I can't do it, right? Because then we don't have our dorm. And yeah, it would be fun. I would have spent a year running around the country. You know, I mean, Beto got to be a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Beto and I would have been running for the future of Texas, mm -hmm. right? Um, and would have been on the magazine. All that would have been great, right? And my students still would have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, now they have a dorm. Now the dorm will be ready in the fall. And, you know, I, I'm okay with that. Um, so did you, did you institute the whole we over me I did. kind of theme to Paul Quinn? Can you talk a little bit about that for people who might be listening and not know what it means? So when I, when I started, we were in a really difficult, we're in a difficult place. And, um, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, I'm sorry for laughing. No, I just I mean, remember it, man. Like it I, you said that. <laughs> I, I remember you saying that you didn't have a history of what was it? Um, we were unencumbered by a history yeah, of success. Yes. Right? <laughs> we were like, how did you make all those changes? Easy to make change when you're unencumbered by a history of success, right? Um, we we needed something to hold on to, mm -hmm. something to believe in, and I understand the power of words, right? Like I like I, I get. Um, but I'm also born and raised in Chicago. I'm a big city guy, and I'm a big city cynic. Mm -hmm. So I tend to be leery of, like, just, like, shtick, mm -hmm. right? And so I remember sitting in my office uh, early on and looking out the window, just thinking, we need something to believe in. We need something to rally you know, at the time, you know, our thing was serving leadership. And I was kind of like, yeah, but everyone's thing is serving yeah, leadership. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, what does that even mean? Right. right? And then you would ask five people, they give you five, five different, different definitions <laughs> of what it meant. It's like, so that's not going to be it. And I started thinking about what do I believe in? Right? Like, what's my personal value system? And, you know, I started thinking about, you know, I'm a Jesuit educator. I went to a Jesuit prep school for high school. And they told us to be men and women for others, right? So that became, you know, love something greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents told me to always leave places better than you found them. Uh, I'm horribly impatient. So, you know, I don't want to wait my turn to leave. That became leave from wherever you are. <laughs> um, and then when I, was, I was, when I was 13 years old, I took this world history class. Um, and they talked about being Renaissance men. People whose accomplishments live on throughout their time and beyond their ages. And I remember thinking, it'd be kind of cool to be a Renaissance man. Now, I don't know why at 13, I'm thinking. I know why. But <laughs> but, I've met your son. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure he's thinking the same, same thing, same but it's okay. Thing, right? like, same thing. And, um, you know, and I thought about it and I was like, you know what? I, I want to live a life that matters, right? So mm -hmm. those things became our four L's. And the theme of selflessness was entered into it. And, you know, the, the judges believe in the common good, right? And the essence of the common good is we over me. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I, I rolled that stuff out in a speech one day. And, you know, truthfully, I thought it was kind of corny, you know? Um, <laughs> and people took to it, right? I mean, people came up to me. It was at one of our speeches back when the chapel was open, mm-hmm. right? And, <laughs> you know, and I was like, you liked it? And they're like, absolutely. Like we need to embrace those things, like those four L's and the we over me. Like that needs to become. So we start, and it and it took hold. It it turns out that people want a pathway to becoming the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't always know how, and it's a scary journey. But if you can make it seem doable, people embrace it, and you know. We over me, it's us. The needs of a community supersede the wants of the individual. And you can't just talk about it, right? Like so if I had left to go run for governor, then I would be rejecting we over me. Right. right? Yeah. Because that wasn't what the the community that I served didn't need, mm-hmm. you know, my face on Vanity Fair, right? Like they needed a president that was present. None of the rest of us did either. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I was waiting to say that. <laughs> oh, listen, I mean, you know, it probably would have driven down sales. <laughs> so I'm curious, what do you do when you have either students or faculty staff who, you know, take come to Paul Quinn or take the job or become a professor, right? Um, and uh, they're not so keen on that. And even though I know that you tell people from the get-go, but sometimes people can talk a good talk and and then they're really they're really not. It's like when people tell you that they know how to use the Microsoft Word Office suite and then you hire them and they don't know how to do any of it, right? So, um, um, which has happened? Yeah, no, no, no. It has, I've had it happen too. So, um, so what do you do? Like, how? I would assume that most people you can bring into the fold, but you can't do that with everyone, probably. You can't do you know, one of the things that I think is important for people to understand is they should never confuse our kindness for weakness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but people often do. People often, yeah. people often do, right? Yeah. And you know, like, uh, you know, like there's nothing weak in my construct, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the thing about it is you have to protect your culture you have to protect mm-hmm. your culture and you know we we haven't been great at hiring right and, and I think part of that is and look I mean you know I'm the president so it's my failure right first and foremost so you know I'll personalize like I haven't always been great at hiring and you know it, it's because there's a tension um Higher ed doesn't really produce the kind of people we need in for in, what you're doing. For what we're right. doing yeah. in abundance, right? Mm. So, yeah. so there, it's very there, traditional and you're untraditional. Yeah, and, yeah. and so we, it's hard for us to find people who can thrive in that environment because. Like, look, it's a little chaotic, right? Like, constant innovation is chaotic. Well, it's like more of like a startup, right? It is. It, yeah. It, like, and and we function like that really by design because we believe no problem is ever permanently solved. How do you find good people for that? Like, I'm just like if there, I I hear people all the time say, "Oh, I want to work at Paul Quinn," 
and well well, what what is it that but i do know some people who are there who really love it so so uh, what do you look for you know if there's someone who's listening and thinking oh i love i love this kind of idea i i want to be a part of this what do you look for in so i'll give you two two three examples right of people who have come in and more recently been successful because I mean there, there are people there are a few people who were there when I got there and, and they're successful I think for lots of different mm-hmm. reasons um, Dr. Kizwanda Grant has been there 10 years um, and I think she's fit because ironically she's so very adaptable right I mean you know this is a woman who's brilliant graduated number two in her class at Grambling you know, math major, has a PhD, you know, uh, went master's from Columbia Teachers College. I mean, you know, really accomplished. Mm. Um, but it's easy like a Sunday morning, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, just whatever it is, it's like, all right, we'll figure it out, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the three specific examples I want to use, one is Dr. Chris Dowdy, mm, who's yeah. the vice president of academic yeah. affairs. Uh, We'll take Dorothy Diller now, yeah. who, you know, is yeah. a UPenn grad, and then we'll take Dexter, yeah. right, who's another Penn grad. So, Chris, I knew within five minutes of the interview I was going to hire him, right? It was one of the easiest hiring decisions I've ever had to make because we sat down, and this is a guy who tease him that he's passing for white, right? Because, you know, like, I'll send him out places to speak for me, and people be like you sent this white boy and then he'll start talking and you know they'll look at him through a different lens and the light because he's trained to be a minister mm-hmm. you know he's i mean he's extraordinary but went to abilene christian um which you would not necessarily think of to be a big hiring pool for following mm-hmm. college right but he grew up his dad's a minister you know grew up in in atlanta the atlanta area um but he is passionate about justice mm, yeah right? i mean like his dissertation is around slavery and justice and you know reconstruction and his soul is an activist soul right Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing the people who tend to be successful have an activist nature in some way shape or form Mm -hmm. right um he is an activist and is very grounded in his faith but is even more grounded in addressing injustices um, and is entrepreneurial in his approach to how you solve problems. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing. You have to be an active, it helps to be an active mindset and that you are entrepreneurial in your thoughts and actions. Dorothy, um, I think, is successful for similar reasons, but I think her background plays into So she's from the Valley, mm-hmm. right, and went to Harvard. Yeah. and. You don't get to Harvard from the Valley without understanding that you are the product of a community. Mm-hmm, right, right. Because right. it took a community and a really unusual break for you to get there. Right. Right. And she got there and never once forgot where she was or where she came from and what her obligation was to be moving forward. And so I look at Dorothy. And I think about just how hardworking she is, how 
entrepreneurial, creative, how creative, incredibly she is, creative, incredibly yeah. creative. <laughs> um, and she's really open minded, right? Like, so I mean, she'll get projects, and I'm like, Dorothy, I know you probably have never thought about this, but I need you to figure this out, right? She'll go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, Chris is that exact same way. Um, so they have to be self starters, too, right? They have to be, um, entrepreneurial, need to be creative, entrepreneurial, creative, um, activist-minded. And then the last one is Dexter, who Dexter's story is really quite phenomenal. He's, his sister went to Fall Break. Mm-hmm. He came down, he started out at community college, was on Fall Break, his freshman year, came down to visit his sister, and never went back. <laughs> right, just So the rest of that semester, he just was hanging out at Palm Point. He would get dressed every day and come to the cafeteria <laughs> to just eat like he was a student. Uh-huh. Right now, lots of problems there, right? Yeah. Like, how'd you get past the front gate? How'd you get served every day without anyone taking financial accounting? You know, this was the early stages. This was 2007, right. 2008. I mean, he's also pretty savvy, you know. He's pretty, so He's charming, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, so he, you know, he worked it. And then he enrolls. Um, and you know, like one of the things I love about Dexter is he had a lot of imp in him, right? Like was mischievous and gotten, you know, gotten trouble in the way that you should get in trouble in college, right? No, he wasn't shooting anyone. Like he was just doing the stuff, frankly, kind of stuff that I did when I was in college, Mm. right? Not all of it, but, but some of it. And he, um. Don't tell your secrets. Yeah. A story you didn't stick, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, but what made me always respect Dexter was when he was caught, he was always honest. Mm-hmm. And that honesty always made me continue to invest in him no matter what he did, mm-hmm. right? And so, honesty and loyalty, but really the, the ability to just evolve right because Dexter went from the student version of himself to you know I remember he was student government president when we did we are not trash right oh yeah and yeah. then you know <laughs> did some fraternity stuff that made him lose his student government oh, presidency gosh. right uh, but he never got mad or quit he was just like I did do those things right yeah I did them knowing that there was a possible outcome and I'm going to take my punishment like a big boy, mm-hmm. not mad, because we never cast him out. Yeah. Right? And so then he kept going. He matured. He did a fantastic job on staff when he graduated. Um, then, you know, went off to Penn, and he became the first Paul Quinn alum to ever graduate from an Ivy League mm-hmm. school. Um, and then he's come back, and he's in training to become the dean of students. He's the associate dean of students mm-hmm. now, um, and is going to be the extraordinary dean of students. And, and frankly, one of my jobs to figure out how to get him a doctorate because Dexter will be a fantastic college president. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's just the ability for people and he's an activist by nature and he's entrepreneurial in his approach to things. And, you know, those traits tend to be there and, and they're people who don't, I, I love the three of them because, you know, they tell me the truth. Right, like they, they know, like I'm not thin-skinned, like you, can, like you know, 
we get lots of stuff right, but we get a bunch of stuff wrong too, right? And if no one tells you what you get wrong, right, right. how are you ever supposed to continuously improve? And so um, I think those traits really, and, and and knowing that you're there for the work, right? Because revolutions are messy. Right, And right. people romanticize revolution. Right? Right. They think, oh, yeah, you know, you guys are, are crazy on Twitter and Instagram and you get lots of press and this yeah. is glamorous. It's like, yeah. But what voice was that you were just doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's the crazy, yeah. oh, okay. you know, but it's, it's really um, like the day-to-day work of it yeah. is hard because exactly. you're constantly being pushed. You know, um, I've got the staff now. I, I don't think our customer service is good enough. So we've embarked upon what will be a six-month commitment to ourselves to become better, right? So now we're reading a book on how the Rich Carlton. Oh, that's a really service. good book, yeah. You know, next up is the book on Disney's customer yeah. service, right? And, you know, I'm like, no, we're all going to get this right. I was like, we're going to be much better internally and externally. And those things matter. And, you know, I mean, many people don't want to go places where, like, the president gives you a book to read, and it's like, everybody reads it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then we're going to read The Art of War, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, like, we're going to do these things, and we're going to do them together so that we develop together. Mm-hmm. And I just think those things are important. Okay. So um, here's the last question. Okay. Because, uh, you know, we don't want people to fade away from our podcast. <laughs> I'm curious. uh who um, who are your mentors and what other leaders have inspired you? Um, so, you know, I'm like a gorilla mentee, you know? So, <laughs> like, I just need you to answer my questions, right? Like, answer my emails, answer my phone calls, answer my questions. Like, I mean, you do that for me. You're certainly in that category. Freeman Habaski mm-hmm. um, has been just fantastic in that regard. Um Ron Kirk, who's the mayor of Dallas, mm-hmm. has has been that for me. Um, uh, let me think, who else in this space? There have been people at different periods of time. Um, early on, Ron Mason certainly played, mm-hmm. he's president of UDC, played a role like that. Um, Bill Harvey at Hampton early on did. Norman Francis, very, very early on, um, provided me just some amazing advice. Um, in terms of inspiration, um, you know, I, I draw inspiration from really a disparate amount of places. Um, I'm inspired by one of my alums, or two of my alums, um, who have dealt with incredible physical challenges and just kept going. Like one is Renisha Isham, who I found in the basement of a church the fall that we had to open school late because we didn't have enough students right fall 2009 and she has a you know cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. and it limits her ability to walk without some struggle and i love her right i mean i've watched her again she and I have the relationship we have because even when she messed up, she would be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the great joys was 
seeing a story the New York Times wrote on us where they talked about her reciting that poem because she and I, one time she messed up and every Friday she got to come recite a poem that she memorized mm -hmm. just so we would have time to hang out. And um, she came to work for us and she's now in graduate school. And, you know, is at the University of, she's at Texas A&M um, in Killeen, like Central Texas. And it hasn't been easy hasn't been easy because she's in a place where there aren't a lot of jobs and she's struggled and so you know we when she was working for us we created a trust mm -hmm. for her and we've had to you know we, it was a rainy day fund right and so she's you know luckily we had the money in the rainy day fund so she could you know sustain herself before she found a job but I'm so inspired by her uh Arielle Clarkson who was a two-time student government association president at the school who for i think close to eight years has dealt with kidney problems that weren't properly diagnosed and no one could figure out what it was turns out she needed a new kidney like she was standing dangerously close to death's door last week had a kidney transplant oh my gosh right? and you know has a daughter and you know, um, just like having been there for her through her medical, you know, struggle, just watching her having the strength to keep going, um, that's inspiring. Um, just the day-to-day -day lives of people that this country hasn't lived up to its promise mm -hmm. for. And to look around at all the people that the country has lived up to. Mm -hmm. Like the people whose lives haven't worked well, they inspire me. Um, you know, I I wanted to be a lawyer because I was I idolized Thurgood Marshall and then Charles Hamilton Beecher. Mm -hmm. And you know, I never want to be a Supreme Court justice. Like, I mean, I, you know, I know it's an important job. I don't have the patience for that, right? But what I idolized about Thurgood was the way in which he took the institution of the law and bent it to accomplish social good in mm -hmm, a way mm -hmm. that it was never thought to be capable of doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was an activist, right? I am an activist, right? I'm an activist educator now, but at my core, I'm an activist. And so I'm inspired by the injustices and that, you know, that's why I do what I do. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. Uh, spending time with me and uh, yeah, and all the insight and hopefully people uh, really uh, will enjoy this podcast. So well, thanks thank so much. you. And I want you to know, uh, I worked very hard to behave, you know, but, <laughs> you know, carry on none of our usual foolishness, right? So, but thank you. And I'm very honored to have done the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome.